welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Jeff Von Moltzahn and he's the CEO and co-founder at Tessera Therapeutics. So Tessera is an early stage biotech startup and they launched uh, last summer with $50 million in financing and they're pioneering a new category in what's called gene writing. And so they go even further than CRISPR, which you may have heard of as a technology, but their gene writing tech presents the potential to cure genetic disorders, cancers, and even infectious diseases like COVID-19. Jeff was awarded a PhD in biomedical engineering and medical physics from MIT. He's done a lot of cool stuff and he continues to do cool stuff. You can hear all about it on this episode, so enjoy. So Jeff, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I was going to say this morning. Is it morning where you are? In fact, it's not even morning where I am. What a terrible start. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> Life is perfect, man. Um, this time of year in Boston, we get about three and a half hours of sunlight. So we're just seeing the first, first rays come oh, out. Amazing. Perfect. Um, cool. So I was going to ask whereabouts are you speaking to us from? So it's Boston in the US, right? West of Boston, yeah. Perfect. Are you at home or are you in the office? Looks like you're at home. I'm at home. Nice. Do you, have you spent much time in the office given everything that's uh, gone on recently? Infrequently. You know, like, like most people, I am now in two dimensions and rarely in 3D with the exception of with our little kids at home and, and our family. So, you know, being an electron has some virtues. It's nice <laughs> to be able to see, <laughs> see you in, in uh, digital, uh, in-person fashion. Yeah. Um, so look, man, the way that we start these, these podcasts is we get you to tell your story. And obviously you've got an incredible background, everything from obviously academia through to, um, uh, therapeutics, biotech, health tech, whatever you want to call it, it. It's got everything, your background, and I'm super keen to get into it. So, uh, if you could, my friend, if you could tell us a bit of your story. Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me on this. This is fun. You know, when you live life like an ostrich with your head underground, focused on, <laughs> you know, whatever's consuming your time, it's nice to uh, peer up and hopefully share some perspectives that, that can be useful to similar ostriches. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm originally an engineer by training. I uh, did my undergraduate in chemical engineering at MIT and feel lucky looking back on it to have fallen in love with biology. But it was via one of these classically, you know, frankly, miserable first experiences of interning in a lab in that, you know, nobody mistreated me, but I I found it to be uh, exceptionally time consuming. And, uh, you know, for example, on a Saturday, I'd spend 14 hours and at the end, no matter what the result was, I'd be squinting at a gel and then facing the recommendation that I should repeat it. (laughs) And after it's a very real description so of uh, of life in a lab, isn't it? It's you sort of are enamored with the big picture of biology, and then you end up, you know, feeling like you're in cooking school, and then you scoop the food into the trash at the end of the day instead of <laughs> serving it to, to someone, you know, to a, a happy customer. So three months in, I was I was talking to my uh, mentor at the time, and you know, felt like I was going to use my time elsewhere. 
and specifically was comparing what I felt like I was learning during the week, which were real things like the laws of all thermodynamics of engines or, you know, all heat and mass transfer principles. And, and then, you know, that on uh, my weekends, I was now, you know, spending a dozen hours at a time to, to run in a circle. And um, I was sustained by something he said, which has been the best guiding light I can point to for, for 20 years now. So I'm, I'm intensely grateful for it. Or it was an offhand perspective, but one with uh, deep roots. And that was that, look, everything becomes engineerable and biology is next. Wow. And while that is simple in concept, it is almost without bound in terms of its implications for society in that every time something we learn about, you know, as grade school students becomes engineerable, the whole world changes. I mean, you know, when that happened with chemistry, the, we had the industrial revolution when that happened with a subset of electrical systems, you know, we got the digital and computational revolution. So, you know, probably when that happens with life, it's going to be important. And, um, and so since I've been fixated on this possibility, which feels ever more imminent, that, uh, that our ability to be able to understand and improve the biology of disease, the biology of health, and um, every industry by virtue of the extraordinary versatility of biological machinery is, is, uh, is going to expand dramatically. So I, you know, that sort of propelled me out of undergraduate with a perspective that the future was uh, hard to predict in many ways, but that there was this potentially inevitable uh, wave uh, ahead. And I figured in one way or another, it'd be, it'd be pretty spectacular to grab a surfboard and, you know, see, see what that would be like. Um, I guess specifically, I, I went and got a master's at UCSD uh, in San Diego, um, thought that surfing specifically would appeal to me, but I felt like I was repeatedly entering the ocean with a weapon that would promptly be stolen from me and used against <laughs> me in the most violent way possible. So, so, so that didn't take. And, and actually, before I knew it, I was headed back to Boston to do my PhD um, between Harvard and MIT. Wow. And, and evermore, I you know, fell in love with this connection between biology and engineering and math and, um, you know, sort of this convergence of many, if not every discipline um, as, as we proceed. And, and I, as an extension of that interest, I ended up uh, really completely falling in love with startups. So I was lucky enough to get involved in, in a couple of them and felt like everything about it was appealing. Like the rate of learning was incredible. The lack of any disciplinary boundaries was awesome. Like I found myself staying up all night to read legal textbooks and, and you know, just by way of my background, that wasn't my most appealing pastime prior to that point. Yeah, but of course. It, it was, <laughs> hopefully I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not smearing the, the, the domain for any legal, uh, legally trained listeners. But yeah, I realized it was part of this bigger game where if, if, if I wanted my ideas to matter, I actually had to understand these things. And, you know, if I, if I didn't, the probability that my ideas would be paper, <clears throat> paper airplanes that 
make it halfway across the room instead of around the world was uh, was unnecessarily amplified. Can and, I just can I just jump in there because yeah, um, I'm just writing down that quote. If I wanted my ideas to matter, I needed to learn these things. It's sort of you know nece- necessity's always driven innovation. I suppose at a, a more meta scale. You know, you, you see through COVID nineteen that it was so necessary to innovate to get us out of the hole that in the UK at least, you know, we widely adopted telemedicine and and you know from a regulatory and policy policy perspective and everything just allowed that to happen. And I suppose on that on that micro scale, even I can relate to having to learn something bizarre in order to innovate. I can remember when I was a, a junior doctor and I told this story a few times on this podcast, but there was a real unlock for me when I stopped just wildly saying what I believed should happen. And I actually shadowed someone in finance, just took some time off and just shadowed a grad, same age as me, you know, 24 at the time and just shadowed them in finance and just asked them really stupid questions. Like how do you buy stuff in hospital? Like what stops you buying things or what actually makes you buy things? Just asking these like incredibly basic questions and, that turned into me learning how to do a business case. And then all of a sudden, when I had this business case, to use your phrase, my ideas mattered. And it was like, wow, here is a point here. Here is something now that I had no interest in finance uh, like at all, but now my ideas <laughs> mattered. So I, I love that. Really love that. Well, it, it's funny because I, I had a similar kind of boundary crossing experience in in the phd program i was in Hmm. it's the the program i was in is the health science technology program that spans harvard and mit it has phds mds and md phds and and even if you're a phd and and you you know your uh happy place is uh in conjuring up technology or you know mastering the scientific underpinnings of, of of part of the world they throw you into clinical rotations for three months. Wow. And, and it forces you to, you know, see vividly what the experience of clinicians is and the experience of patients. And wonderfully, the, the, you know, the physicians are incredibly patient to the, you know, childlike, open minded questions of, of, you know, the PhD students and, you know, and, and, uh, and those that are that are uh, that are following, it, in that it allowed me to constantly pester them with questions like, "Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why are you holding that with your left hand? What does that tool do? You know, wouldn't it be better if you had a tool that could do the following?" Or even more futuristic things like, "Will all medicine be replaced by computational tools over time?" What and was their face like when you asked them those questions? Oh, that was a fascinating one of, you know, at the time, Deep Blue was just beating Casper off and, um, you know, or that was a, uh, that was one of the sort of, you know, mountains that computers had been able to climb. And so the question I would pose is, you know, when does Deep Blue beat the best physician at uh, every differential diagnosis? And the perspectives were beautifully stratified in a way that's, that's probably telling about you know, both medicine as well as human nature, there were computers could never do, Hmm. you know, what I do kind of perspectives, which I listened quietly to and, 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 
uh, often disagreed with. Um, and, and then there were the, well, currently it would be really difficult for a, you know, a computer to operate within this domain, but, and then you start to fill in the blanks of some of the enabling explosions of data that actually make it impossible for a human brain to be able to, um, you know, do better than guesswork really in, mm -hmm. in inferring what the right answer would be. And, and it reinforced for me that my home was going to be on the technology side. I think the most exciting version of medicine to me was the one where 10 years from now, 20 years from now, everything's changed. Yes. You know, there, there were sort of no necessary rigid assumptions, but you could operate with first principles and, Ask the question with optimism of, right. and with and with that exactly. being enabled you know when you're asking questions on that side of the fence it's yes if rather than just no and that's right. what that's what on on my side of the fence in clinical medicine that was the thing that really got to me it was there was it was always it was always an assumption of that's not going to happen i made myself very unpopular in anesthetics when i asked a consultant uh, like an attending like when I asked them, uh, what really is anesthetics, if not just an algorithm in your head? Hmm. So why can't a computer be better than you? Because yeah. frankly, let's say we gave all the drugs through the anesthetic machine. So it knows when the drugs are going in, it can correlate that with the vitals. There's a camera so it can view the surgical field. There's a microphone so it can hear what people are saying. So it can pick up panic. Like, what what is delivering a safe anesthetic if it's not you just using your five senses and mm -hmm. acting accordingly right it, it, yeah well, and now there is an the, argument for art in there by the way there's <laughs> not massive argument for humans but i was trying to encourage the debate yeah you know human brains are not great at operating with multiple quantitative streams of data in yeah. parallel Sure. And in settings where that data is diverse and real time and not visual, it's, you know, it's just it's not our, our sweet yes. spot. And as medicine gets increasingly built around those kinds of sensors, diagnostics, you know, et cetera, it, uh, it will increasingly bring computers into every aspect of our uh, diagnosis, prognosis, and, you know, even just real time assessment of, of what it means to be optimally healthy. So, you know, kind of wandering back in, into the past, the, you reminded me of just how grateful I feel in hindsight for the number of physicians in that example, scientists and others, teachers and others, uh, my parents, uh, loved ones as well, who, when I had a wild, probably bad idea, were able you know we're encouraging as opposed to discouraging yeah, right so from that came kind of came this uh, ability to um or a, you know affinity for imagining <clears throat> that the best you know was yet to come and in the more immersed i got in in startups the more i began to believe that if in fact biology goes from incredibly expensive empiricism or or trial and error to predictive success, you know, in climbing this arc of becoming engineerable, it's probably right to imagine that the most impactful life science companies of all time have not been started. 
And, you know, support for that would historically be that Bell Labs wasn't able to do everything that happened by other companies thereafter. And um, IBM wasn't able to do everything that the trillion dollar companies have done since in Silicon Valley. And generically, when there's a meaningful jump in our technological potential or in, you know, the insight with which you can predictively succeed in a field. At an ecosystem level, that tends to favor startups because yeah, all of a sudden you, you gain an advantage if you make every single decision around that new perspective. And that in fact is the only virtue of a startup. Like you've maximally freed your ability to make decisions. And while the default for startups is, is still death and it is, you know, often kind of not talked about in startup mm -hmm. ecosystems because it's not fun to think about. Yeah. I, I actually think it's valuable to hold in one's head that the default is excruciating. Like it's, uh, it is a prolonged, usually painful process, um, you know, that takes with it thousands and thousands of hours of, of, uh, of, of one's passion and time. But at an ecosystem level, with, it's a virtual certainty that the extraordinary companies of that new era of technology are going to come from startups. Companies that haven't been started, don't have a name, aren't even you know, a glimmer in, in an <laughs> entrepreneur's eye yet. And so, yes, you know, that I think leaves you with an incredibly complicated game of chess you know, to be played out for contemplating starting anything. But the possibility that um, truly exceptional things are are going to be at hand and that this profession, if you will, or accumulation of skills that that, uh, that we call being an entrepreneur is, um, you know, not a license to work out of one's parents' basement in perpetuity, but, but possibly, you know, the same kind of... Uh, venue that it's been for changing the world in, in, in domains prior. It's, a, it's an so, interesting one. Um, just to jump in a sec, there's a couple of things that spring to my mind. Um, the, the first one is risk, you know, because people often talk about the startup game as inherently risky. But I've heard, seen and heard and had a lot of conversations recently where I suppose the question is, been put back to me is is the biggest risk never taking a risk is the biggest risk never being involved in a company that might fail is that is your destiny then completely confined to something that will never be that thing that changes the world and is that going to impact you negatively and it, it was just an interesting thought because i've had a few and this is the second thing on mind i've had a few people on on this podcast very strangely that are health tech entrepreneurs that in the early days of their career were in the music industry and there's literally been i think four people that i've been on this podcast that have been in the music industry seen it completely and utterly disrupted from a place of absolute certainty almost mm. and they've just seen it completely disrupted by the internet and spotify and all the other streaming services and napster probably at the time and limewire and all those different things and they they have had this this uncomfortable feeling that no matter how certain you are that you aren't taking risk, 
by not taking any risk, you're actually being quite risky because even your industry can be utterly disrupted and you can be out of a job. You can be learning, you could be learning a skill now that could be completely irrelevant in five, 10 years time. You know, it's, it's crazy to think that. And so being on that side of the fence, I suppose, with innovation and getting involved in startups where, you know, as you've said, quite rightly, you were skilling up in legal just to, because you were interested in it and you wanted your ideas to matter. But at the end of the day, that's driven you to diversify your skill set, to have more going on, to be able to have a hand in the future. It, it's interesting. It's just a thought, but it's, it's definitely interested me recently about risk. I, I think we're missing a word in the English language that that would recalibrate people's expectations of risk in that I, exactly as you're saying, I think it is one of the most misunderstood concepts in that people often ascribe risk to mean, you know, the difference between certainty of some baseline uh, acceptable situation versus the possibility of something worse. Mm where it has in fact, you know, all of us are going to measure our choices 40 years from now based on whether we're proud of the decisions we made and whether we were fulfilled by the experiences that we had. And if you recalibrate risk to assess what is the probability that I am deeply fulfilled by the experience that I'm choosing to undertake, I think it would lead people to make different decisions. And, you know, simplistically, what's, what is the probability that I'm using my time wisely? And in many cases, in fact, that would lead you to be attracted to much, much uh, more magnificent uh, possibilities, which, uh, you know, But the may... magnificence doesn't necessarily mean super successful startup that exits for a billion either that magnificence could be as you say in your own fulfillment that you mm-hmm. learned all those things that you tried that you tried and failed but learn all of those usual cliches but the, the, the point you're getting i like that that really the north star should be that fulfillment yeah i couldn't couldn't agree more and and startups turn out to be a wonderful home for that in part because they're a hundred miles an hour, you pour your heart and soul into it. And, and one of the things that I think is also misunderstood is that people ascribe career risk to be startup risk. And, and that isn't right in that the community of startups is constantly seeking people who thrive in the environment that of complexity, true. ambiguity. That is and very true. If you find that your home is, in trying to make seemingly unreasonable things real and that you enjoy states of you know discomfort and in fact exhibit you know the ability to remain calm or comfortable comfortable despite the discomfort of not knowing many aspects of you know the specifics of one's future um if if the startup that you choose to start be a part of isn't successful frequently there's a line at the door of uh additional startups hungrily seeking the the skill set that you've been you've been honing so i think there's a kind of simpler true north to bias oneself towards in the near term which is just what am i most excited about where am i going to learn the most 
And, and where am I going to have the chance to work with people that I uh, deeply love and respect? And when those th three things are aligned, um, you know, the rate at which you accrue skills and share them with other people, the, you know, the affinity that your brain will have to wake up Saturday mornings and be pouring over the, you know, the details of, of uh, the unsolved problems all leads to uh, an expansion of the you know, number of possibilities that lay in front of you, both within that specific opportunity and once thereafter. So we should probably kind of wind back into <laughs> sort of what, what brought me to, to where I am now. I, I, at the conclusion of grad school, um, I was sort of play, play, facing this fork in the road of joining a startup I was involved in creating or taking an academic path. I had come into flagship pioneering to pitch the company that I was starting that led to a set of conversations that initially I thought uh, would be focused on potential funding for that startup, but it ended up uh, focusing on the possibility of a role where I'd be inventing and starting companies internally. And it was a couple cups of coffee that led me to swerve off the academic path that I was considering to, to do just that internally. So I, that is now the predominant focus of everything at, at Flagship. Uh, virtually all the companies that we're starting are products of the inventions and science that we're doing internally. And over the past 10 years, I, I've been doing exclusively that. So each of the companies I've been a co-founder of, I've been an inventor of the founding technologies. Those include Series Therapeutics, which is a human microbiome therapeutics company. I was the chief technology officer through the discovery of a drug candidate called SEER 109. For a time, that was a liability uh, on my resume um, after a spectacular failed phase two clinical trial. Wow. This summer, we had a more spectacular phase three clinical success. Wow. And it's positioned to be the first FDA approved microbiome therapeutic. Wow. After that, I was this founding CEO of Indigo Agriculture, which uh, is a couple billion dollar company focused on um, improving the, the systems of, uh, of biology and data that, uh, that farmers utilize. Uh, everything I've been doing since then has been in, in, in therapeutics. So that has included a, uh, an effort that was called Cobalt, which merged to form Sana Biotechnology. Uh, we created a uh, platform for engineering proteins called Fusogens to allow the potential to deliver therapeutic payloads to any cell in the body in a receptor-specific fashion. And then of, of late, uh, have been leading two companies, Tessera Therapeutics and uh, Generate Biomedicines, respectively focused on technology we call gene writing and utilizing machine learning to engineer these extraordinary machines that sound simple because we call them all proteins, but in fact are <laughs> some of the most magnificent motors, devices, and sensors uh, in our world today. So let's geek out a bit then. Tell me about, tell me about gene writing and tell me about some of these protein machines. Cool. So the, I'll give you the foundation of it or how we began because it, it'll help exemplify, I think, some of the thought processes that are useful upstream of starting a company. 
first of all, as an entrepreneur, you're, you're often tempted to start something because it feels more tangible then. And, and it's worth resisting that as much as possible. If you learn nothing else from doing this a few times, it's that no matter what you do, you're going to pour thousands of hours of your life into it. So it's worth taking some fraction of that and focusing upstream of starting or committing to anything on determining whether or not that really has a chance to be epic, you know, or the kind of use of one's time that you're going to be most intensely proud of decades from now. And, and Tessera came uh, sort of into an exploration form at Flagship around the time the, the CRISPR companies were going public in that it became apparent that the, the many extraordinary virtues of CRISPR, which for, for usually this is a household name now, but, but I'll give some background on it. CRISPR is a, an enzyme called a nuclease that is able to programmably cleave DNA. And it has become uh, an extraordinary tool for editing genomes, human genome and others. It does so by programmably cutting DNA. And what that typically does when you cut DNA in a human cell is it leads the cell to say, oh my God, the genome just broke. It tries to fix it. It, it often does so in an error-prone process, which then disables the function of that gene. So previously, the, the world of science didn't have a tool through which you could programmably turn off any gene. And, and that is spectacular, you know, to be able to roam throughout the halls of our genome, turning light switches off, you know, and kind of figuring yeah, out what the implications are is a really big deal. However, at the same time, most of the unmet need in genetic medicine requires you not just to turn something off, but to fix something. <laughs> As you can probably relate to most of the time we get frustrated in our macroscopic world, it's because some technology we, re we rely upon breaks. You know, they're usually apt to break, not uh, become hyperactive. So when something breaks the level of DNA, what that requires is not just cutting, but cutting and pasting or cutting and writing a curative therapeutic message into a specific site. And, and CRISPR is not great at that, which if you jump back to nature where it came from, it's no fault of its upbringing. In fact, in nature, CRISPR's role is to protect bacteria and microbes from invasive DNA. So its job is to destroy DNA. Yep. And, and often, since almost all the biotechnologies that we've built are built by standing on the shoulders of Mother Nature, uh, if something's role in nature isn't well correlated with what you're trying to do, it's worth starting over and saying, let's go looking at nature for machinery that might have spent hundreds of millions of years evolving these exact technological uh, capabilities. So, so we did that and, and did so with, you know, with, a, uh, with an open-minded and frankly naive perspective on whether or not Mother Nature would have invented the machinery to write DNA. We quickly realized that we weren't giving Mother Nature nearly enough credit. <laughs> the category of DNA that does that is called mobile genetic elements. The first of them was discovered before the structure of DNA was elucidated by an incredible 20th century scientist named Barbara McClintock. 
And if you zoom out to genomes in nature today, these are the most abundant genes in all of nature. About half the human genome is made up of mobile genetic elements and uh, big chunks of furry genomes, green genomes, life forms, big and small. So simplistically what mobile genetic elements do is they make a copy of themselves. They make the machinery to grab onto that in the form of RNA or DNA. And then they take that to a new site in the genome and write their code into that location. So if you think of life from the perspective that Richard Dawkins promoted in his famous book, The Selfish Gene, which is that our genome is a unit that natural selection acts on, but it's also like a village that thousands of life forms live inside of called genes, and they're vying for their own survival too. When you think of life from that perspective, the ability of a sequence of DNA to copy itself, find a new home and move in, is like the minimum circle of life. So in that light, it's not surprising that over a billion plus years of evolution, they ended up being all over the place. And if you take abundance of a gene as a proxy for how much R&D Mother Nature has done to perfect it, you could make a case that she spent more time perfecting this machinery than any category of genes in, in nature. So what we realized in Tessera was that this may be uh, the most advantaged, you know, the tallest shoulders that you could build a technology upon and directly connected to the most important needs for the future of genetic medicine, which are to go to a location in the genome and insert either a whole gene or a specific therapeutic revision to a given site. So we've, we've been engineering these to create what we call gene writers and gene writers are capable of inserting therapeutic sequences as opposed to their own sequence, which, which mobile genetic elements do in nature. And over the past few years, we've invented gene writers that are capable of doing things that have potentially sweeping implications for medicine. So we've invented gene writers that can make uh, single base pair alterations to change any base to any other base. They can also make scarless insertions or deletions. That by itself at a genetic level potentially enables a cure for virtually every type of rare genetic disease, except when a chunk of a chromosome jumps from one place to another. And then because in many cases, you have to write a whole gene to be able to uh, execute a therapeutic function. Or when there's a patient population with uh, a wide distribution of mutations within a given gene, the, the most practical therapeutic would be to write a perfect sequence of that gene into a given location. We've also invented multiple gene writers that are capable of doing that with levels of efficiency that, uh, that we think are unprecedented. So, you know, it, it's early days, all things considered, um, yet, we feel like we're in the fortunate position where, although it's hard to know anything about the future, with virtual certainty, the category of medicine that resides within genes is going to be very large over time. You know, if you want to cure a disease or protect someone from ever getting a disease, DNA is the rightful home for those therapeutics. And the, the 
category of those medicines we think is going to favor the best technologies because you're going to be able to read the efficiency of every medicine with sequencing. So we're intensely focused on building the platform to master the rules of, of writing and rewriting sequences in genomes. It's, it sounds extremely powerful. It, as you quite rightly say, there's so much that can be done from this. And I think just to make this really clear for the people listening, what are the implications of this? You've mentioned obviously a few gene writers. A few, you've mentioned the concept that disease can, certain diseases can be cured with, with gene therapies. You guys obviously having a platform technology that can be applied to multiple of these obviously just has exponential uh, or, or arguably limitless potential within the genome. Do you want to just talk practically just to what this actually means for patients out there with genetic diseases and or, I mean, you could argue a heck of a lot of diseases have a genetic component. I mean, what is the practical implications of this? What are the conceptually you could make a case that that medicine as a whole has been climbing up the central dogma of biology over the past hundred years in that you know medicine began largely with small molecules the drug proteins then proteins became drug and the biotech industry was 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 birthed now we're seeing society saving our mRNA therapeutics and multiple classes of RNA therapeutics and and the first cures have taken place at the level of, of DNA. We think that's just the beginning, that because DNA drives the biology of every cell in our body and is the code of life, the ability to be able to make small or whole gene alterations in a programmable fashion to the genome of a subset of cells in our body is, is going to play a role across every single therapeutic area. In fact, you know, it's probably evident given the, uh, the focus today on curing scenarios where frustratingly simple errors in the genome create devastating lifelong disease. You know, why this is a category that's going to have important impact there. But, you know, we're also living in an era where the tools to read genomes are uh, expanding and decreasing in cost faster than Moore's law has, has been advancing. So 20 years ago, we had one human genome sequence. Now we have millions. That's going to be billions in the not so distant future. And, and it's going to continue to reveal the subtle differences in, in genomes that entail extraordinary protection against ever getting disease. You know, for example, single nucleotide alterations that can protect against cardiovascular disease or single nucleotide changes that could prevent somebody from ever getting Alzheimer's or provide the kind of protection against neurodegenerative disease that we expect from our vaccines today. Um, you know, except taking what vaccines do for infectious disease and, and potentially making that a possibility across some of the biggest sources of disease in society. So if you sort of jump past where we are today, the multi-decade opportunity for genes in medicine is, 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 is really extraordinary. 
And like with most people on this podcast, you can, you, you can see your eyes light up when it talks about the impact. And I think so many people that come on this podcast, many of them don't need jobs or need anything to do. They are just driven by the impact that they can make. And it seems like you're no different, right? You can see the sides of your mouth go up when you talk about the impact and you, you can really feel it from you that the science excites you. My question for you, though, is being... And, it, and it's an interesting word, an inventor. You've mentioned that a few times, <clears throat> excuse me, that you invent a lot of these technologies. For someone like yourself that does have that kind of mind that can invent, how do you come up with your ideas? You know, it's, it's a hard question to answer in that one always looks for these kind of apple falling on Newton's head type mm. moments. You know who came up with the idea? How did uh, you know? How did it? How did it arise? In fact, I think when you when you look at the real version of these, the thesis that drives Tessera, or you know the the technology in quotes, it is this amalgam of an emergent contribution from many people dozens of people and in fact the the best version of tessera is the one that that emerges you know from the the team and creativity and uh you know and decisions that are still ahead of us so i i I think in fact some of the most inventive uh places or or groups defy the typical single inventor you know, concept in that, you know, with no diminution of one's individual creativity and contribution, one is able to operate in a culture that is uh, constantly challenging the status quo, asking how something could be better, starting with first principles, and willing to wander off into these, you know, new jungles and try to figure out how to, how to survive figure out which snakes are poisonous, you know, figure out <laughs> what you can eat and, you know, where sources of water are, um, et cetera. And in fact, given how quickly the tools of biology are advancing, the, you could make an argument that wandering into a new domain gives you more advantages than disadvantages in that so long as you hold yourself to the expectation that you gain a level of mastery that is comparable to the world's experts, Doing that in a rapid period of time allows you to master what is known today and what is unknown, whereas doing it over a, a couple decade period of time actually makes it much more difficult to separate assumption from, from fact and to recognize what the tools of today are capable of, of, of enabling. And, and all of those are, are uh, virtues of, of the culture and and team that we've got at flagship were uh, perceived by some to be an investment firm but in fact the majority of the core competency of the firm is is that of world-class scientists inventors and life science entrepreneurs internally working in teams to try to do things that are bigger than what one would be able to do on on on, on your own We'll have to get you back on to talk about flagship pioneering because it is an incredible model for for creating as many companies as you guys do with the impact that you that you can make. But in the interest of time, 
I would just like to thank you for coming on, Jeff. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think uh, an, a, a wonderful conversation about entrepreneurship and some absolute golden nuggets in there of, uh, of quotes that I'm definitely going to take forwards. Um, but my, my final question would be that, that obviously we get a lot of people that listen to this podcast. Um, do you have any asks of our audience or indeed any final thoughts for our audience? Well, James, the gratitude goes both ways. Thanks for having me on. Uh, be happy to continue to share things that we're working on anytime that it'd be of interest to you and your audience. One of the things to make people aware of is anybody who's in life science and an aspiring entrepreneur, technologist, uh, clinician, who would be interested in getting immersed into the world of flagship of, of starting companies. We run out of flagship, a summer fellowship program that is intended to take young professionals and throw them you know, in the middle of the pool of entrepreneurial thinking and processes underlying the way we create companies. And then every one of our companies also has uh, fellowship programs and opportunities and is, uh, is, it's an ecosystem that's growing very rapidly. So if you're interested in any of that, please come to our website, send us a note and um, hope to be connected to the audience that you're, you're reaching around the world, James. Love it. And for everybody listening, I will stick the links to those fellowship programs in the description of this episode. So Jeff, thank you very much for coming on. Likewise. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.